Okay. So we finished talking about T cell education on Wednesday and how T cells learn how to become our own T cells. And they're going to do that by being taught, well, not really being taught, by being destroyed if they respond inappropriately to our MHC molecules. So we looked at the MHC molecules and we looked at how those T cells are going to enter the thymus as thymocytes and leave the thymus as fully mature, ready to serve and protect in the immune system as a fully functional right, CD4 positive T helper cell or a CD8 positive cytotoxic T cell. And how basically those T cells have been taught to ignore our MHC molecules and only respond to the peptides that are going to be presented in that peptide groove. So let's sort of wrap up the, right, the second third of the course. It's hard to believe this is the second third of the course, right, with our test on Monday. Again, right, Monday test. Everybody in the lab is going to go over to where we, right, and 378 is going to go to the lab room to take the test. So, cytokines. We talked a little bit about cytokines. Now we will concentrate on cytokines for today. So as we've said before, cytokines are the messengers of the immune system. They're low molecular weight proteins, by low molecular weight around 20,000 Daltons. Right? They're secreted by immune cells, and as it turns out, some cytokines are secreted by non-immune cells. We're finding more and more, but we'll talk about that. They serve as the intracellular messengers of the immune system, sort of like, right, if you think about the, the endocrine system, they act like hormones, but they are going to be able to signal the immune uh, system cells and also other cells, as it turns out. It's all receptor-mediated. If you don't have a cytokine receptor on your cell surface, you're not going to be able to respond to that cytokine. The receptors all have a very high affinity. You don't need a lot of cytokines to be able to activate a cell. And because of that, they're active at picomolar concentrations. So picomolar, right, very small amount. So cytokine is a, a general term right, cytocell chemical, cytokine, is a general term that is also going to include nowadays, right, they've all been lumped under the umbrella of cytokine, things like lymphokines, right, chemicals released by lymphocytes, monokines and, uh, and phagocytes, uh, chemicals released by monocytes, and also interleukins. So lymphokines, factors released by lymphocytes, Monokines, factors released by mononuclear phagocytes, or interleukins, right, in between leukocytes, factors released by leukocytes that act on other leukocytes. So they're all basically the same thing, right? They're all these chemical messenger molecules. So when you look at the actions of cytokines, they're basically just like hormones of the endocrine system. So when you think about hormones, you think about autocrine, paracrine and endocrine, right? So autocrine uh, sort of activities of cytokines are when that cell or that cytokine is going to bind to receptors on the same cell that secreted it. Okay. So certain, if T cells release cytokines, 
specific cytokines will bind to that T cell and stimulate the T cell. Even though it's on the same cell that released it, right, it's still capable of stimulating that cell. Paracrine is basically what you talk about most of the time in that it's the binding of that cytokine to a receptor on a target cell in sort of close proximity. So before when we've talked about those T helper cells giving help and releasing cytokines to perhaps those phagocytes that they have right, recognized via their T cell receptor, those peptides on the surface of the phagocyte, they're going to deliver that help. We talked about interferon, gamma, we've talked about other you know, sort of cytokines in general. So those are the paracrine sort of signals. And then we have an endocrine signal, and that would be binding to receptors on a target cell in a distant part of the body. Remember when we talked about the ability of that complement spit product C3E to diffuse away from the tissues, make its way into the circulatory system, and then it's going to be able to stimulate cells inside the bone marrow. Right. That would be sort of an endocrine signal here. So the same thing can happen here. Cytokines can be released and they're going to be able to bind to receptors on cells maybe inside the bone marrow to stimulate release of cells from the bone marrow or to be able to bind to receptors on, on, on far away targets and induce a change to be able to participate in the immune system itself. So, something has to be able to stimulate the cell, so there's some sort of an inducing stimulus. Right? The genes are, are stimulated. That cytokine-producing cell is going to be able to release the cytokine. The only way that this cell is going to be able to respond is if it has that cytokine receptor on the cell surface. There'll be some sort of intracellular signal, and there'll be a biological effect. So, autocrine, again, bind to itself. Paracrine, nearby cells, and endocrine make its way out into the circulatory system and stimulate a distant cell right, to participate in another aspect of the immune system. So when we think about cytokines themselves, okay, their actions can fall into four different categories. We could have pleiotropic actions, and here this is when one cytokine with different biological effects on different target cell types. So if we go to the, to the examples in the book, here's an activated T helper cell. It's going to release interleukin-4. Interleukin-4 will stimulate B cells for activation and proliferation. It'll stimulate thymocytes for proliferation. And it'll stimulate, or it can stimulate, mast cells for proliferation. So an individual cytokine having activity on three different cells. So we have that, you know, that large engulfing activity. We have redundancy, and in redundancy, right, two or more cytokines with the same biological effect on a target cell. So cytokines like interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6, right, will basically have the same biological effect on a target cell. And in this example here, here they're talking about right, interleukin-2, interleukin-4, interleukin-5, they are all B-cell proliferation factors. Right? B-cells will be able to respond to any one of those cytokines. We have a synergistic effect 
with the combined effect of two cytokines on an individual target cell, right? Both of those signals have to reach that target cell in that environment for that target cell to be able to be stimulated, right, and, and participate in the immune response. And here, the example, again, right, a T helper cell, and remember the help that the T helper cell gives are basically release the cytokines. So synergistic activities, interleukin-4 and interleukin-5, stimulating a B cell at the same time, can induce a class switch. When we talked about class switching, when we talked about how an immunoglobulin molecule can go from an IgM molecule to an IgG molecule, to an IgA, to an Ig, right? They're going to introduce the class switch, in this case, to IgE, if interleukin-4 and 5 are delivered and stimulate the B cell at the same time, right? The synergistic effect. The other thing, we can have an antagonistic effect one cytokine blocking the effect of another cytokine on any given target cell. So again, things like interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor can be blocked by interleukin-10. Interleukin-10 is a major sort of down regulator of the immune system. And in the chart, right, that we've been looking at here, interleukin-4, when it's, when it's released, and interferon gamma is going to arrive at the same time. And again, remember, this doesn't have to come from this same cell, but if interleukin-4 and interleukin gamma are there, it can block class switching. Okay, so all these sort of activities, as you would expect, because they're all chemical mediators of the immune system. So remember, over here, right, this activated T cell can release interferon gamma, stimulate a macrophage, that macrophage will now put more MHC class II molecules on the surface. It will now phagocytose more. This, macrophages, or th this macrophage right, can now, because it's been stimulated, it's an activated macrophage, perhaps it's going to be able to release interleukin-12. Interleukin-12 is going to be able to stimulate an activated T helper cell. This T helper cell has interleukin-12 receptors on the cell surface. When it's activated by interleukin-12, Right, so in this example, right, the inducing stimulus here, right, is either going to be phagocytosis or activation by another cytokine. So over here, it's going to be able to release interferon gamma, tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-2, and a whole bunch of other different cytokines, right? So you can have all these different activities taking place, right? So here's this interferon gamma, can then feed back hit this macrophage, stimulate the macrophage, other macrophages in the area, right? We're going to be able to have this, this, this cascade induction right? just by chemical mediators, right? The major part of this, of this diagram of this cartoon is that we have these mediators being released and they're going to participate in the stimulation of other cells of the immune system. So when you think about cytokines and you think about early work, cytokines really sort of became being looked at in the 1960s or so, right, the early 1970s. And it sort of, it sort of came hand in hand with progress in tissue culture. Right? We've talked about this before. Right? Once we were able to take cells out of the body or take cells right, dissect cells away and grow them in plastic so that we could have a 
well, now we try to have monocultures, but back then, right, in the early days of tissue culture, before we understood what sort of media we needed, what sort of carbon source those cells needed, the incubation condition for those cells. So the, the development of tissue culture went hand in hand, and here, when we're talking about cytokines, it was the growth of many different sort of T-cell lines that were developed. Because once we had these T-cell lines, we could then be fairly confident that those supernatant fluids that we were collecting, right, those proteins that were being released from these T-cell lines and the purification of these proteins, we were pretty sure right, they were coming from T-cells and they were having effects on T-cells. So hand in hand with tissue culture. So these secreted factors that we were collecting from these tissue culture uh, secretions, right, had effects on proliferation and differentiation and maturation of a whole bunch of different cells. Right? Almost every cell in the every immune cell in the body was going to release cytokines and be stimulated by cytokines. And now we we have come to find out that most every cell in the body is going to be able to release cytokines and those cytokines are going to act as messengers to allow immune cells to be called to areas where inflammation or right, some sort of pathogen attack is taking place. So we have all this information now. And in these early studies, right, the functional identification was based on the biological activities that we were seeing either being released from the cells or the effect that these factors were having on the cells that we were looking at. Again, it took the development of tissue culture for this to all come about. But, you know, there were problems that were taking place and when we came to biochemical purifications because Right? If it's the middle of the 1970s or so, molecular biology is sort of coming online. We don't have molecular techniques now, so we had right, our, our uh, biochemical techniques that were there. So we had a whole bunch of biochemical purification schemes that were taking place. And we ran into problems during purification of these cytokines. Because our early assay systems, based on our tissue culture abilities, involved mixed populations of cells. So we didn't have homogeneous populations of cells at that time. Right? Maybe if we had a cell culture that was 95% pure with lymphocytes, right? it had 5% contamination of maybe monocytes or eosinophils or neutrophils, right, if we're collecting these cells from the blood, or if we are dissecting the thymus or, or, or dissecting the spleen perhaps, Right? We didn't have homogeneous populations. So again, it took techniques of tissue culture and the way in which to purify. Remember when we talked about lymphocytes, we talked about uh, some sort of positive selection and some sort of negative selection. Right? When we looked at antibodies, and I'm not talking about positive selection and negative selection inside the thymus. Right? We did talk about using antibodies to be able to uh, isolate different cell populations. So when those sort of assays and those techniques came along, we were able to get homogeneous populations of cells. The other thing that, that came to be found was that the culture supernatants themselves could contain a mixture of cytokines. If we were 
right? If we had a, a dish full of T cells, we didn't know that T cells were, could theoretically be, be releasing interleukin 2 and 4 and 5 at the same time. Right? So we would have to have purified interleukin 2 from interleukin 4 from interleukin 5. So we had those sort of biochemical techniques and those biochemical manipulations that we needed to take care of. And remember, right, because cytokines are active at picomolar, sub-nanomolar concentrations, right, anywhere from 10 to the minus 10 to 10 to the minus 15th moles, we really need to have purified sort of cell cultures because, right, if those cultures even contain the lowest concentration of a different cytokine, how do, we, how do we know that that activity that we're looking at from our culture supernatants wasn't coming from, right, that contaminating cell population that was releasing a different cytokine that was in very low concentrations, but because it's so active, right, it could look like that was the activity that we were finding. So we had all these different sort of things. The cells were contaminated and the, the culture fluids were contaminated with right, very small amounts of different cytokines. So we needed to find some ways in which to better purify these cytokines, better assay systems, right, have a, uh, a more convincing way of proving to ourselves that we didn't have a mixed population of cells anymore, that we had homogeneous populations of cells. So, eventually, we did start to find new sort of assay systems. And with the help of tumor cell lines, right, we had tumor cell lines that we could grow. And we talked about this before, right? When we had T cell tumors and B cell tumors, that was our first sort of breakthrough when we were looking at immunoglobulin molecules, when we were looking at T cell receptors. So if we take these T cell lines, if we had a, a not these T cell, these tumor cell lines, so if we had a tumorigenic macrophage cell line, we would be able to purify out the macrophages and make sure that we had 100% homogeneous populations of those macrophages, right? So we would be able to know that those cells themselves were the only cells, those macrophages were the only cells secreting those different cytokines. We were able to develop certain cell lines that depended on the presence of that cytokine to even live in culture. So if you had this cell culture and you didn't provide it with a certain cytokine, that cell culture was going to die. So that was a way that you could use an assay system to purify these cytokines as they were making their way through those biochemical purifications. And so all this, the right, we've talked about this before, tissue culture and the ability to use cells of the immune system for right, looking at biological activities of the immune system went hand in hand. Right? Now these days, zip zip, right? we got computers, we got uh, sequences, we've, right, we've cloned the entire genome, we've cloned lots and lots of different genomes, so what do we do? We take a, we take a certain DNA sequence, we take a certain protein sequence, we feed it into our, into our computers, right? the computer sort of 
takes those protein sequences, compares them to other sequences in the genome, takes those DNA sequences, compares them to other sequences in the genome, and we can come up with whole families of cytokines now. You don't have to use any sort of biochemical sort of techniques until after you've sort of showed, right, you've cloned and purified a new sort of cytokine, and then you can go back and use biochemical techniques, and you can use a whole bunch of different uh, sort of no, we could use biochemical techniques, and then you can go back and use a whole bunch of different biological sort of assay systems to see what the biological activity of these cytokines are in terms of other cells in the body and how that fits into the immune system. So it's a whole different kind of science these days. It's a whole different kind of science everywhere these days. So the cytokines themselves, right? when we look at interleukins, there are about 33 interleukins that have been identified these days. It might be up a little bit more in, in time, right? So, so far about 33 or so interleukins have been found. A whole family of interferons. We've been talking about interferon gamma. A little bit later on when we talk about the response of the immune system to viruses, we'll talk about interferon alpha and interferon beta. We talked a little about tumor necrosis factor. There's two types of tumor necrosis factor, TNF-alpha and TNF-beta. We talked about a whole bunch of colony-stimulating factors, right? Remember, like GM-CSF and GCSF, so all those factors that were involved in hematopoiesis. There's transforming growth factor beta. TGF-beta is one of the major down regulators. It's one of the major inhibitory cytokines, not only of the immune system, but of all sorts of different sort of uh, biological activities inside the body and at one point in time. Right? So every, probably, yeah, I'd say every couple of months or so, if you, if you scan through the scientific literature, you'll see new cytokines that have been talked about and cloned and discovered and new sort of biological activities that have been attributed to these cytokines. So when you start looking at things that will tie cytokines together, right, because there's going to be some sort of evolutionary continuity even in cytokines themselves, many belong to a family and the largest family is based on the structure of the cytokine protein itself. And this includes interleukin 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, interferon, beta, GM, CSF, right? A whole bunch of different cytokines. They have a very high degree of alpha helical structure with little or no beta pleated, beta -pleated sheet structure. But they all share this very similar polypeptide fold that contains these alpha helical structures. Right? So again, some sort of evolutionary continuity takes place. Right, so if you look at interleukin-2, you look at interleukin-4, right, you can see these, these alpha helical sort of substructures. So they're all a member of what are called the hemopoietin family, because hemopoietin was the first molecule that was found to contain this structure. Right, but they all have this alpha helical structure as part of their basic right, protein structure. So again, we can look at evolutionary, you know, sort of uh, establishment and development of cytokines themselves, right? So, cytokines have all sorts of different functions. And we've talked a little bit, right, about these functions when we've been talking about T cells delivering help. We've talked about uh, macrophages releasing cytokines to stimulate T cells and things. 
So they can be mediators of natural immunity, mediators of innate immunity, elicited by infectious agents from mononuclear cells. So when those macrophages are out in the tissue space or those dendritic cells are out in the tissue spaces and patrolling as they are phagocytosing pathogens, they're going to be able to release cytokines to stimulate cells in the, in the, that are close and cells that maybe are in the, the thi not the, in the lymph nodes or in the spleen, right, to be able to alert the rest of the immune system that something is wrong out there in the tissue spaces. Regulators of lymphocyte activation, growth, and differentiation. When those T helper cells release those cytokines like interleukin-4, interleukin-5 to stimulate B cells, to be able to stimulate the proliferation of the B cell and the secretion of immunoglobulin molecules, right? Elicited in response to specific antigen recognition by the T lymphocytes via the T cell receptor. So we have an example of innate immunity and an example of specific immunity for cytokines. So cytokines can cross those boundaries, right, between the innate immune system and the specific or the acquired immune system. So we need that crosstalk to be able to take place to unite all those arms of the immune system. They're regulators of immune-mediated inflammation. They're going to activate nonspecific inflammatory cells, right, in response to specific antigen recognition by T lymphocytes. So those T lymphocytes are going to release things to stimulate, right, uh, inflammation. The classic example we've talked about is interferon gamma. Right? T cells are going to be able to stimulate macrophages by releasing interferon gamma. And we've talked a lot about how right, they're involved in hematopoiesis. Right? When we talked about things like interleukin-7, remember we had all those arrows for hematopoiesis and we had things like interleukin-3 and interleukin-7 and GMCSF and GCSF stimulating cells in the myeloid pathway, in the lymphoid pathway, right, to be able to mature into fully mature cells that are able to leave the bone marrow and function out in the periphery. So we have all this type of, of activity that's taking place. So how do we know about cytokines? Well, we know about cytokines because back in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, we found a factor that was called T-cell growth factor, TCGF. And as its name implies, it was able to stimulate T-cells. So it's the first cytokine that was ever found, and it's called interleukin-2. So you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. If it's the first cytokine, why isn't it called interleukin-1? Well, for political and historical reasons, the people who first were discovering T-cell growth factor sort of missed the boat. Right. So, just like, remember we had those CD meetings that we were talking about? Well, we had some cytokine meetings that we're talking about. Right. So early on, people would come to a meeting and someone would stand up and say, I have a 20,000 molecular weight protein that's released by T-cells that can stimulate T-cells. And I call it Greg's cool cytokine. 
And somebody else stood up and said, oh yeah, well I have a cytokine that's 20,000 molecular weight and I can isolate it from T cells and it can stimulate other T cells and it can also do this. And somebody else would stand up and say, oh, I got that. So what are we going to do? Same thing we did at those CD meetings. I'm going to give you some antibodies and you're going to give me some of your antibodies and I'm going to give you some of my factors and you're going to give me some of your factors. Right, and other people are standing up saying, well, I have a 21,000 molecular weight protein that's released by macrophages that can stimulate it. So they're going right, to they're gonna trade back and forth, and you're going to have my stuff, and I'm going to have your stuff. And six months from now, we'll all come back to the same room, and we'll all discuss our experiments. All right, six months later, they come back. And all those people who stood up and had this T-cell growth factor, and they were the first ones to talk about it, a lot of them didn't show up. So the people who had stuff that was simulated from macrophages, they were there and saying, yep, absolutely, my molecule is her molecule, and her molecule is his molecule, and his molecule is my molecule. Let's call that molecule interleukin-1. So interleukin-2 sort of got right, downgraded to, even though it was the first cytokine ever described, it gets the name interleukin-2. But right, interleukin-2 is another protein that is the darling of the biotechnology industry. Because interleukin-2 was one of the very first proteins that was ever sort of cloned and manufactured in bacteria to be used as a therapeutic agent. This heralded the beginning of the downfall of the old pharmaceutical companies. It heralded the beginning right, of the new sort of way in which pharmaceutical companies were going to develop from now on. Right? Instead of taking organic, chemi organic chemicals and changing around those organic chemicals and moving, you know, sort of R groups and shifting all sorts of atoms inside it, you know, some sort of inorganic molecule to be able to use as a drug, we're going to start to use natural products. Right? So people thought, okay, we can use this interleukin-2, we can use this stuff as a as a therapeutic agent to stimulate T cells, to stimulate the development of T cells, to stimulate the T cell arm of the immune system to protect patients who are undergoing chemotherapy, to protect patients who are undergoing radiation therapy, to maybe stimulate the immune system to recognize tumor cells inside the body so that the immune system could help in the eradication of cancer cells. Hmm. It's all a good idea. It's all a very good idea, except for one very small problem. Let's go back in time here. That's the problem. Right there. Right? Because even though we want interleukin-2 to be able to stimulate T cells, right, as T cell growth factor, interleukin-2 can stimulate B cells, interleukin-2 can stimulate a whole bunch of other cells. So if you use interleukin-2 as a right, as a molecule of interleukin-2 and inject it into somebody, you're going to be turning on a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't want to turn on at the same time. So these early experiments, right, with patients in the clinics resulted in, right, sort of a lot of bad things happening because of the redundancy in terms of cytokines. If we could figure out how to make a molecule, right, we're going to modify interleukin-2 so it will only be recognized by T-cells, now we're talking. But, because interleukin-2 can be recognized by a whole bunch of different cells, right, that's a problem. 
But it was, it still is the darling of the biotechnology industry because it was the first one that was cloned. Right? So it'll, it will always be that. So what do we know about interleukin-2, the original cytokine, T-cell growth factor? Well, we know that it's around, well, we don't know it's around, we know it's exact, right? It's a 15.5 kilodalton glycoprotein produced mostly by CD4-positive T-cells. So it fulfills the definition of a cytokine, right? It's low molecular weight, released by T-cells, stimulates T-cells. It's released upon antigen stimulation. So a resting T-cell isn't going to be able to release interleukin-2, or won't release a lot of interleukin-2. Once that T-cell becomes stimulated, it's going to release a lot of interleukin-2 to stimulate other T-cells in the area. So those T-cells will, will release interferon gamma to stimulate macrophages, right? We've talked, and we've had that map up here all right, quite a number of few times. It's an important determination of the magnitude of T-cell dependent responses. The same way we talked about, right, uh, a couple of weeks, uh, a week or so ago, when we had interferon gamma being stimulated, we're in going to increase the amount of MHC, MHC class II molecules on those macrophages. Those macrophages will stimulate more T cells. Those T cells release more interferon gamma. At the same time, those T cells are releasing a lot of interleukin-2 to stimulate a whole bunch of other T cells in the area. If Right? When we start chewing up all those invaders, there's no invaders left, those macrophages aren't putting MHC on the surface anymore, those MHC molecules aren't being recognized and stimulating T cells, T cells are going to stop releasing interferon gamma, they're going to stop releasing interleukin-2. Right? It's going to allow us to come back to normal, back to hemostasis. Interleukin-2 is responsible for progression of T cells, right, into mitosis from G1 to S phase. So it can take those resting T cells and start to stimulate them for differentiation and proliferation. It's an autocrine growth factor, right? And it's going to act on nearby CD4 positive and CD8 positive cells, so it's an autocrine factor as well. So it fulfills all the definitions of everything we've talked about for being a cytokine, right? It, right? even by its name, T-cell growth factor, right? It is the, the sort of way in which we define in, uh, cytokines nowadays. So, whole family of cytokines, lots of interleukins, right? We have a whole bunch of other cytokines in, the, in all the different families that we're talking about. They all carry out their biological function by the receptor cytokine receptors themselves. And the receptors are the way in which cytokines are going to be able to exert their effects. If you don't have the cytokine receptor, you're not going to respond to the cytokine. It's not like other growth factors, right, that may be able to diffuse through cells, stimulate the interior of the cell. It's all receptor mediated. So, when you think about interleukin-2, T-cell growth factor, right? we're going to have the interleukin-2 receptor. And again, interleukin-2 was the most characterized cytokine up until that point in time. The interleukin-2 receptor was the most characterized cytokine, right, early on. So the action of interleukin-2 on T-cells is mediated by the binding of that interleukin-2 molecule to the interleukin-2 receptor. Normal resting T-cells don't have many interleukin-2 receptors. Activated T-cells, once they become stimulated, 
right? One of, the, one of the proteins, one of the genes that will be turned on, one of the proteins that are turned on, <coughs> right, is the interleukin-2 receptor. So we get a lot more interleukin-2 receptors on the surface of that T-cell so that that T-cell will be able to respond via interleukin-2 that are being released, right, through paracrine sort of activation of other T-cells in the area. Right? It's a little more complicated than that, in that the interleukin-2 receptor itself is composed of three separate chains. So you have an interleukin-2 alpha chain, an interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, and an interleukin-2 receptor beta chain. So all of these subunits have to come together to form a high affinity interleukin-2 receptor. So when you look at these things, when you see how these things are, are taking place, okay, so on a resting T cell, resting T cells express the interleukin-2 receptor beta chain, the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, right, they have both of those subunits, and that's going to be able to bind to interleukin-2 with a moderate amount of affinity. And this is going to allow resting T cells to respond to very high concentrations of interleukin-2 in the area. So that's the way in which they're going to become stimulated. And that's going to lead to the stimulation of this individual T cell that is now going to be able to respond to that interleukin-2 in the area. On the surface of a stimulated T cell, that's when you have right, the, the beta chain, the gamma chain, and the alpha chain, right, now they're all on the surface, and now you have uh, the ability to bind interleukin-2 with very high affinity, and this is going to allow T cells to respond to low concentrations of, of interleukin-2, and that's going to lead to progression through the rest of the cell cycle, right? You have a lot of interleukin-2 in the area, and now you have a fully functional interleukin-2 receptor on the surface of the T cell. So if you sort of look, right, pictorially at, at what's going on, right, you can have a low affinity receptor, that's just the alpha chain, right, that intermediate affinity one on the resting T cell that has the gamma chain and the beta chain, and then on the surface, right, you're going to have this fully functional high affinity uh, receptor that will bind to interleukin-2 that's going to contain the alpha chain, the beta chain, and the gamma chain itself. Now, at that point in time, when this was first discovered, we thought, oh, okay, well, that's good. That's a nice sort of way to do it. But then we found that you can have receptors expressed on many different cell types. And most of these receptors have multiple subunits as well. So when you look at cytokine receptors, most of them have multiple subunits. One subunit is going to bind to that specific cytokine, and it's usually going to be the alpha chain. And one subunit is going to mediate signal transduction. So when you look at the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, for example, right, that interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain is also a component of the receptor complex for a whole bunch of other different cytokines, like interleukin-4 and interleukin-7. When you look at other cytokines, you can have the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, the interleukin-2 receptor beta chain, and they're required for binding by interleukin-15 itself. So, 
again, when we talk about sort of the simplicity of nature and right the the the, the space saving nature of nature, well the space saving nature of nature, the space saving ability of nature, right? what we're going to do is we're going to mix and match all these different receptor subunit pieces, and we're going to save ourselves right the the necessity of reinventing signal transduction time after time after time with these individual cytokine receptors. So what we're going to do is we're going to have one subunit that's going to be used for signal transduction and we're going to share that with a whole bunch of other cytokines. We're going to have one subunit right? that's going to be the sort of pivotal part for the specific cytokine. So when you talk about right, the interleukin-4 receptor complex you're going to have an interleukin-4 receptor alpha chain and you're going to have the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain. So that interleukin-4 alpha chain is the one that's going to bind to interleukin-4 and then the gamma chain is going to do the signaling. Similarly, you're going to have the interleukin-7 receptor alpha chain in combination with the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain the interleukin-7 receptor alpha chain is going to bind interleukin-7. That way it can respond only to interleukin-7 and it's going to signal through the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain. Right? It's, just a, it's just a simple method to save space and to save right, extra uh, abilities to be able to signal. So, things like GMCSF, interleukin-3 and interleukin-5 share a common beta component, right? So you're going to have that, that common beta, so GMCSF receptor alpha is going to bind to GMCSF and it's going to be able to signal through that common beta chain. The interleukin-3 receptor alpha binds interleukin-3 and signals. The interleukin-5 receptor alpha component binds interleukin-5 and signals through the beta chain, right? We didn't know a lot about this until we started finding and finding more and more receptors and finding the ability to characterize more and more and more of these receptors. So when you look at that interleukin-2 receptor subfamily, right, with the common gamma component, so here's our fully functional interleukin-2. There's the alpha component that will bind interleukin-2, right, the, the, the beta uh, can bind a little bit itself, right, so there's the alpha, beta, gamma. So in here, here's the interleukin-2 receptor beta and the gamma, the signal, the common gamma component, and here's the 15 alpha that's going to be able to bind 15. And then when you get down here, 17, the 17 alpha, 9 alpha, 4 alpha share the interleukin-2 receptor gamma signaling component. Right? When you look at interleukin-6, you can see the same sort of activities over here. They're all going to share this GP130, right? This glycoprotein of 130,000 molecular weight is going to be the signaling component. And these are going to basically going to be the alpha chain so that they'll be able to bind the, in, the individual cytokine, right? And here's GMCSF, IL-3, and IL-5. And IL so they share this common beta that's going to be able to signal and the alpha, alpha, alpha is the one that's going to be able to bind to the cytokine so that those cytokines are going to be able to signal themselves. As it turns out, this sort of strategy is going to have a flaw. 
And the flaw is going to be what happens if something goes wrong with the gamma chain? What if there's some sort of mutation and you lose the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain? If there's a mutation and you, and you lose the interleukin-2 receptor gamma chain, means you knock out interleukin-2 signaling, interleukin-15, interleukin-7, interleukin-9, and interleukin-4 signaling. So nobody in the body is going to be able to respond. You'll still be able to release interleukin-2. You'll still be able to release interleukin-15 and 7 and 9 and 4. It's just that it's going to float through the body and not have any sort of effect on any of the cells of the immune system at any one point in time. And there have been diseases, right? We've talked about right, chronic granulomatous disease. We've talked about other sort of autoimmune diseases. There are autoimmune diseases where right, that gamma chain is knocked out. So we'll talk about those specifically when we talk about autoimmune diseases, when we start talking about autoimmune disease. But just sort of remember that, right? This is sort of a problem that could happen. If this beta chain is damaged or a mutation is involved and we aren't able to use the, this common beta component, right, we're going to have a problem with hematopoiesis. Remember, interleukin-3 was one of the major cytokines of hematopoiesis. Interleukin-5, turning on T cells, turning on B cells. So we're going to have a major problem if something happens to any of these common sort of signaling components. So nowadays, Right? We can look at maps of signaling via cytokines. And just like before, when we looked at hematopoiesis, right, and I can see all these sort of initials on here, and you probably can't, but you can see all these blue lines, right? All these blue lines are cytokines that are being secreted. We always put the, right, that T helper cell right here in the, in the middle as the major sort of cytokine signaling component cell, but if we were to take this map and really turn this map into what we know about cytokine pathways, again, this map would have to probably be, you know, way over there to that wall and we'd have to go into the basement to be able to put all the different signaling components and all the different activities of all these cells together, right, because we know so much more about them. So macrophages can have effects on fibroblasts, right? We said that we can have effects on cells that aren't part of the immune system. So here are macrophages stimulating fibroblasts, here are macrophages stimulating endothelial cells, right, in terms of hematopoiesis, in terms of the mature cells themselves, and more importantly, these activated T helper cells delivering the help, right, the cytokines, the B cells or T cells are even feeding back, right? There's interferon gamma, right, feeding back to stimulate macrophages themselves. Okay. Not so bad. We're even able to go three minutes soon. Won't Professor Pollock be very happy? All right, so Monday morning, right? We're having a test. Everything's on Blackboard, or this, hopefully, this will be on Blackboard. Well, not hopefully, it will be on Blackboard later on. So all the lectures, all the everything is on Blackboard. On the web page.